Hi everyone, and welcome back to the ninth episode of the Let's Talk Law podcast with me, your host, Wendy. Last week, if you listened to the episode, we talked about searches and seizures in a school environment. But this week, we'll be talking about something completely different. Before we get into it, we need to talk about the First Amendment. There are a couple of parts to it, but the First Amendment encapsulates a lot of the rights that we have. The First Amendment guarantees the freedom of speech, press, petition, religion, and assembly. The speech and press part of this amendment can be grouped together and be called the freedom of expression. Freedom of expression means freedom from governmental interferences or actions that might restrict the right of expression. There are some exceptions to this part of the amendment, but we won't get into that today. What we do want to focus on is the freedom of the press part of the amendment, since the case we're talking about played a large role in the development of it. Today, we'll be talking about the well-known case New York Times Company v. United States. The Vietnam War was never really declared as a war by the United States, but by 1968, more than 500,000 military troops had been placed in northern Vietnam. A year before, in 1967, Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara commissioned a quote-unquote massive top-secret history of the United States' role in Indochina. McNamara employed a team of analysts working for the Department of Defense to prepare a highly classified study of the United States' political and military involvement in Vietnam from the end of World War II till the present day. The study was officially called the quote-unquote Report of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Vietnam Task Force, though many people would know the report as the Pentagon Papers. This top-secret report drew information from classified material from the archives of the Department of Defense, State Department, and the Central Intelligence Agency, also known as the CIA. The report was completed in 1969 and was bound into 47 volumes, contained 3,000 pages of narrative, and had 4,000 pages of supporting documents. Daniel Ellsberg, who had served as a U.S. Marine Corps officer from 1954 to 1957, now worked as a strategic analyst at the RAND Corporation and the Department of Defense. Initially, he had been a supporter of the United States' involvement in Vietnam and had even worked on the top-secret report. However, by the completion of the Pentagon Papers, Ellsberg had stopped believing, along with lots of other Americans, that the war in Vietnam was winnable. Additionally, he believed that the information contained in the Pentagon Papers should be more widely available to the American public. Some of the critical information in the Pentagon Papers indicated that the John F. Kennedy administration had actively helped overthrow and assassinate the South Vietnamese president in 1963. The report also went ahead and contradicted what the United States government had said about intensive bombing of North Vietnam. Ellsberg secretly photocopied large sections of the report and approached several members of Congress, none of whom took action. Two years later, in March of 1971, while working as a senior research associate at MIT Center for International Studies, Ellsberg leaked 43 out of the 47-volumed report to New York Times reporter Neil Sheehan. This was not the first time information had been leaked, 
but the leak to the New York Times had very different circumstances. This was information that the United States was obviously trying to keep hidden from the public, and it had previously been high-ranked government officials that had purposely leaked the information. On June 13, 1971, a Sunday, the New York Times released an article called Vietnam Archive, Pentagon study traces three decades of growing U.S. involvement. By the next Tuesday, the New York Times received an order to stop further publication from a district court judge at the request of the administration. On June 18, 1971, the Washington Post also began publishing its own series of articles based on the Pentagon Papers. Ellsberg had also given part of the report to Ben Bagdikin, who had brought the information to the Washington Post editor, Ben Bradley. Later that day, Assistant Attorney General William Rehnquist asked the Washington Post to cease any further publication. The government claimed that the publication of the articles would cause, quote-unquote, irreparable injury to the defense interests of the United States, and wanted to, quote-unquote, enjoin the New York Times and the Washington Post from publishing the contents of a classified study entitled History of the U.S. Decision-Making Process on the Vietnam Policy. Attorney General John N. Mitchell for the United States cited Section 793 of the Espionage Act as authority for the United States to bar further publication of the stories based on the Pentagon Papers. Section 793E of the Espionage Act reads, quote-unquote, whoever having unauthorized possession of, access to, or control over any document, writing, code book, signal book, sketch, photograph, photographic negative, blueprint, plan, map, model, instrument, appliance, or note relating to the national defense, or information relating to the national defense which information the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation willfully communicates, delivers, transmits, or causes to be communicated, delivered, or transmitted, or attempts to communicate, deliver, transmit, or cause to be communicated, delivered, or transmitted the same to any person not entitled to receive it or willfully retains the same and fails to deliver it to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it. Among the defendants were the New York Times Company, Arnold Sulzberger, the president and publisher of the New York Times, Harding Bancroft, and Ivan Veet, both executive vice presidents, multiple vice presidents, and other editors. Attorneys for the defendants, Alexander Bickel and Floyd Abrams, found three arguments from the Espionage Act. First, they found that the wording of the statute was very broad and there were some questions that they had. Was each article about foreign policy one quote-unquote relating to the national defense? What was the significance of reason to believe that the Pentagon Papers could be used to the injury of the United States or the advantage of any foreign nation? If the motivation was to educate the public, was that a defense served to help not hinder the country? Would the public be 
quote-unquote, a person not entitled to receive the information. Also important was what this section of the Espionage Act did not say. There were no references to quote-unquote publication, as Attorney General Mitchell's cease and desist order referenced, no reference to classified information, and no support for Mitchell's reliance on the top-secret classification to justify restraint on publication. Additionally, there was no statutory language providing authority for prior restraint on publication at all. Secondly, there was Supreme Court precedent that led support to the idea that bans the publication of information by the press to be unconstitutional. In 1907, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the quote-unquote main purpose of the First Amendment was quote-unquote to prevent all such previous restraints upon publications as had been practiced by other governments. In 1931, the court wrote that only the narrowest circumstances, such as publication of the dates of departure of ships during wartime, were permissibly restrained. Thirdly, Bickle and Abram saw a very broad view of the First Amendment, one that said the publication of just these sort of materials, governmental misjudgments and misconducts of high import, is exactly why the First Amendment exists. Federal Judge Murray Gerfine heard arguments in the District Court for the Southern District of New York. Michael Hess, Chief of the Civil Division of the United States Attorney's Office, argued, quote-unquote, Serious injuries are being inflicted on our foreign relations to the benefit of other nations opposed to our foreign relations, to the benefit of other nations opposed to our form of government. Hess asked for a temporary restraining order. Bickle argued that the separation of powers stopped the court from issuing the restraining order since there was no stature authorizing it. He also said that there was no exception to the general unavailability of prior restraint that applied in this case. The New York Times initially refused to cease publication but ended up agreeing to abide by the restraining order. On June 19th, Judge Gerfine rejected the administration's request for an injunction, writing that, quote-unquote, The security of the nation is not at the ramparts alone. Security also lies in the value of our free institutions. A cantankerous press must be suffered by those in authority in order to preserve the even greater values of freedom of expression and the right of the people to know. However, the Court of Appeals, after an en-bank hearing, granted an injunction until June 25th. An en-bank hearing is when a case is heard in front of all judges of a court, rather than by just one. On June 26, 1971, the Supreme Court heard the case, and the decision was made four days later on June 30, 1971. The court had a vote of 6-3 to three in favor of the New York Times. The Supreme Court ruled that the government failed to prove any actual harm to national security and that the publication of the papers was completely justified under the First Amendment freedom of the press. In addition to the publication in the Times and the Washington Post, other newspapers such as the Boston Globe published it as well. The papers also entered public record when Senator Mike Gravel of Alaska who was an outspoken critic of the Vietnam War, read them aloud in a Senate subcommittee hearing. 
The published portions revealed that the Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson presidential administrations had misled the public about the degree of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. There were some landmark cases in the 20th century that established exceptions to the First Amendment freedom of press rule, such as the quote-unquote clear and present danger rule from Schneck v. United States. The decision stated that the government carried the burden of showing justification for the restraint. This only further reinforced the idea that Nixon's administration had the responsibility to show evidence that the newspaper's actions would cause grave and irreparable danger. The six judges that ruled in favor of the New York Times were Douglas, Brennan, Marshall, Stewart, Black, and White. One of the opinions from Douglas argued that a free press was needed in order to keep the government in check. Many of the judges also believed that the government did not overcome the burden in order to block the stories from being published. Dissenting judges were Harlan, Blackman, and Berger. The minority opinion was that the court was unable to gather enough information to make a decision and that the newspapers should have thought of possible repercussions before publishing. If I had to give a quick summary of this case, then I would say that there was a top-secret report that got leaked to several newspapers. The government tried to stop these publications, but were unable to prove that the publications would greatly threaten national security. This case is both very important and interesting because it only further reinforces the precedent from other First Amendment cases and makes it so the government can still be put into check. Before I end this week's episode, I want to make sure to add in our little fact. This week, it's from Chesapeake, Virginia, and says that, quote-unquote, If any person over the age of 14 years shall engage in the activity commonly known as trick-or-treat or any other activity of similar character or nature under any name whatsoever, he or she shall be guilty of a Class 4 misdemeanor. Nothing herein shall be construed as prohibiting any parent, guardian, or other responsible person having lawfully in his or her custody a child 14 years old or younger from accompanying said child. The ordinance also makes it so trick-or-treating is not allowed after 8 p.m. Better make sure to get as much candy as you can when you're still under 14, and before 8 p.m. of course. And so, that's all that I have for this week's episode. If you want to give me a suggestion, feel free to email me at letstalklawpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at letstalklawpodcast. Remember to check back every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a new episode. Until then, bye!